five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, fellow space enthusiasts. This week we are talking about space debris. My guest is Luke Piguet, the co-founder and CEO of Swiss space company ClearSpace. They are building a spacecraft that can remove space debris. It looks really cool, sort of like a giant spider. Check it out in the link in the episode notes. They already have a big ESA contract for the first mission. A space debris is a problem to take seriously and Luke is one of the best people in the world to explain it. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Well, hello everybody. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by my friend Luke Piguet, who is the co-founder and CEO of ClearSpace. Swiss company based in Lausanne. Welcome, Luke. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Luke, why don't we start off um, as always, and you can give us the elevator pitch on ClearSpace. So yeah, uh, actually the space ecosystem or, or the space infrastructure is not really sustainable today. I think that's not uh, that's not a news. Uh, most people know that uh, the number of space debris is increasing dramatically, and and historically platforms in orbit have been built so that they cannot be maintained or not for maintenance actually. And uh, the result is that the, the space infrastructure is more or less like like a, a high speed motorway network that had no tow truck for years. So what ClearSpace is actually building is a tow truck service, the capability to intervene in orbit, to remove failed satellites before they collide or, or explode, and, and intervene for in-orbit servicing that can in the future do maintenance or life extension of satellites, essentially making the environment sustainable. So this is what we're working on. Today, there's more than 5,000 uh, failed satellite and used rocket bodies, which are essentially, if you want, clients in orbit waiting to be serviced. We closed down our first contract with the European Space Agency to pick up a part of the launcher um, by 2025 and are already working on a couple of other missions and proposals for either life extensions of satellites in, in, in geostationary orbit or removals of debris in, in LEO at this stage. Thanks, Luke. And, and you mentioned that the 5,000 failed uh, satellites which are up there. And I think it's important to put it into context because those are failed complete satellites. And correct me if I'm wrong, but apart from that, we have, um, depending on what size you use, thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of pieces of other debris flying around. Exactly. Right? Yeah, precisely. And I, actually, the, the, the problem is uh, every single one of those large objects or complete satellites present the risk to actually transform into thousands of debris or more. Uh, and, and that's the whole problem is that all the small debris that are tracked, uh, the, the ones more than 10 centimeters are tracked in orbit, uh, but all the smaller ones are, are, are uh, essentially statistically estimated. All those objects actually uh, stem from the same source, which are a larger object that are left in orbit in an uncontrollable, unmaneuverable state uh, that end up either uh, sometimes exploding, sometimes uh, colliding with other objects. So what we really try to do is is uh, 
is attack the source of the problem and remove complete objects before they actually fragment. Uh, going to pick up all the small fragments is much more expensive. And at this stage, um, we think there's a business case for large objects, uh, larger or complete satellites, uh, but not really for the small debris or shards that are in orbit. Since this is meant to be a, a non-technical podcast, um, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to maybe explain for 30 seconds um, what, what the Kessler syndrome is and why that would be so dangerous. Yeah, so the, the, the Kessler syndrome is is, um, uh, is the idea that what can happen in orbit, and it's something that's been predicted by Donald Kessler in the 70s, which is a long time ago, uh, saying that the fact that we leave objects in orbit and that they to remain in orbit, a satellite or a rocket body has to orbit at a very high speed. They have to, main, to maintain altitude. They have to go at 28,000 kilometer per hour That's about, about seven kilometer every second. And uh, and when they're at this speed, depending on the altitude, they can remain a very long time. So when a satellite fails, uh, it might collide with another object and then generate thousands or tens of thousands of, of debris, which will then continue orbiting at very high speed and can then collide with other objects, generating more collisions. And the, the Kessler syndrome is actually this idea of that, that they can, there's a moment where there's a cascading effect that occurs that, that makes that the number of objects in orbit increases over time and, uh, and increase the level of risk, danger of collision in specific altitude. And, and today we already see that kind of phenomenon happening between 700 and, and 1,000 kilometer altitude where we didn't inject more satellites, but the number of object track increases year over year. Right. And and I think it's also, people may have seen even in the news, we sometimes, or we, I guess we increasingly get news items of things like near collisions of satellites or of small uh, pieces hitting, right? So I think a few months ago, we had a piece hitting the, the, the Canada and the robotic arm on the International yes. Space Station. Uh, we sometimes have uh, satellites being hit and uh, the solar panels being damaged and, and so forth. And it's, it's, it's probably worth pointing out, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember that um, people predicted even a one centimeter piece, if it hit at the wrong place, could have taken out the entire space shuttle. Yes. I think actually the, the, the problem is uh, when you have a small object at this speed, the kinetic energy that an object carries, right, is huge. It goes substantially faster than a, than a, than a rifle bullet. So the, the energy that an object that is in motion carries is the mass by the square of the speed. And at those speeds, even very small masses have huge impact, which means that a small object the size of a small bolt of a few millimeters could have an impact that is similar to uh, a, a hand grenade exploding uh, in collision. And, and that, that's, the, that's the challenge we have with, with those small debris. So, so a small debris of a few millimeters has a, a life-threatening, can have a life-ending impact onto a satellite or, or an astronaut, um, in fact. So I think this is really a serious problem. It's also a serious problem for another reason. It's because we are completely, absolutely dependent on space infrastructure today. Mm -hmm. I mean, our complete economy runs over space infrastructure. Most people actually use them multiple times per day. Even if you don't have a mobile phone, you use space infrastructure just to buy your milk, right? You go into the mm -hmm. shop, the milk is there, there's been GPS, there's been tracking, synchronization of the service. All of this runs over, over space. If we would come to lose this infrastructure, it will throw us back 60 years in the past. And th this is something we cannot live without today. And we cannot uh, promise or hand over a, a viable earth or future to the next generations if we don't take care of this, this infrastructure. And what we see is that it's actually just a piece, a building piece of this 
uh, operation is missing, and that's what we're actually working on. Mm-hmm. And, and it's it's like you say. So we have already these um, these thousands of five thousand um, failed complete uh, spacecraft bodies up there, and we keep adding more and more satellites. Especially at the moment, it seems like at an increasing speed. And it seems like on the so you're obviously working on a solution or a technological solution. But let's go a little bit also into you know sort of the legislative side. It seems like for now there's still no requirements sort of worldwide requirements that um, satellite operators have to basically ensure that their satellites um, deorbit, or where does that stand currently? So that that's actually right. Well, partly right, actually, because what, what we have right now is an international legal framework for space. I mean, we have, uh, we mm-hmm. have conventions uh, that define that the launching states are liable for objects for as long as they remain in space. And, mm-hmm. and what, where, where there's some sort of technicities about that is that when, when you have an object that hits the ground, if you have, for example, a rocket body like the Chinese rocket body that fell back to the ground, we didn't know where it would fall. If this one would fall in the middle of, I don't know, an island of the Seychelles and destroy a hotel, China would be directly and completely responsible for it and would have to pay for all the damages. It would be immediate and complete. But when it happens in space, it's a little different. If, for example, uh, an operator, let's say uh, 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 a UK constellation, has uh, a lot of satellites in orbit and has a few of them that fail and leave them there, and me, I have my Piguet constellation from Switzerland and mm-hmm. um, the or or in or in or in the US, and and one of the satellites collides with one of mine. So if if I would want to get uh, reparations or damages first, it, it's it, I would have to address the state. The state, the UK state, would directly turn back to the operator. But I will have to demonstrate fault. And I think that's the problem today, that demonstrating the fault of another operator is extremely hard to do. Because uh, if if I would call this operator over, he would come to the court and say, hey, guys, uh, I bought a very reliable satellite from Airbus, right, Mm -hmm. or from whoever. They're very good at building satellites, very redundant, uh, very stable. Um, I launched them with a, a recognized launcher that also respects all the best standards. I've got the best operation team in the world. They respect all the standards. Every operation they do is traced and monitored. Um, and then when the satellite failed, I put a team of 10 fantastic engineers trying to recover it for six months. After six months, I came to the conclusion that this was impossible. So nobody could have done better than I did. Where did I commit a fault? And demonstrating the fault would be really difficult, right? Mm. Now, mm. On, on the ground, if you take a, a very easy comparison, I buy a very reliable car. I, I buy, I don't know, a Rolls-Royce. It's a very expensive and reliable car. I go on the motorway and it fails on the takeover lane, right? And it's there in the middle of the motorway. But luckily, I'm, I'm an engineer in automotive, so I know how to repair those things. So I spent two or three hours trying to fix it, but I cannot, right? It's not possible because I don't have either the parts or whatever. So I just walk away and go buy another Rolls-Royce and continue driving. I would have come into the fault because I could have called the tow truck. So mm-hmm. what happens is that in space, there's no tow truck yet. There's no, there's not, actually, it's, it gets back to the fact that this piece is missing in the space ecosystem and that we mm-hmm. need it if we're serious about scaling a space economy. We just need it. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and this, is, this is really what drives us. And we think that in that sense, the conventions and legal framework for space operation doesn't need a huge change to our sense. Uh, what's needed is first to make sure that the services that are needed for this operation exist. And then it comes to the, the national regulators to actually decide, okay, what do we really expect in terms of responsible mm-hmm. use of space from our operators? But this discussion cannot happen unless there's a tow truck service in orbit. Yeah, no, fair, fair enough. Before, before we dive into your specific 
uh, or generally, and then your specific tow truck solution. I mean, you you gave the example with the Rolls Royce and it failing on on the motorway, but at the end of the day. So, so even if it's hard to prove the fault, ideally, I suspect none of the operators want to buy like, you know, one Rolls Royce after the other. I mean, nobody wants their satellite to fail or get destroyed, right? And, and the insurance companies, to the extent they're, they're, the satellites are insured, also don't want that, I suppose. The, the tendency is to go to many more smaller and cheaper platforms, right? The, mm-hmm. the, 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 the approach right now is to say, okay, let's try to make a satellite that costs less than a million and launch them for as cheap as possible and have as many as possible. And in this in this equation, the satellite becomes essentially disposable. I fail Operationally, it's not really an issue for you because, well, you can continue operating your constellation you've got many more right you you actually you build in the in-orbit spares so that you can cover and provide the service with the right quality even though there's a few failure in in your constellation so i think for most of the the trend when it comes to small satellites the idea is rather to go toward a cheaper platform that you can actually leave on the motorway it's not a big issue right then to go toward uh making sure you don't lose a single one and the, the challenge you have is is the is the is the cost versus reliability uh, uh, curve, if you want. The more reliable a system is, the more expensive it is, and it's more or less an exponential, right? So if you want to get the last percent, it costs you yeah. substan- The last percent costs you substantially more than the first twenty, right? And uh, what what happens there is that on Earth we don't have just the cost reliability curve; we also have the cost maintenance curve, which means that. If you have a very unreliable system, you can maintain it, right? Which means that you will have a very, if, if it fails always, then you have to always maintain it. It's very expensive to maintain. But as the reliability goes up, the maintenance cost goes down, and there's an optimum in between, right? And most systems on Earth are built like this, and it's logical to do that. In space, it's not the case, again, because there's no way to intervene in orbit so far, right? So... What, what we essentially are doing with this exercise is that we're shifting the space operation into this environment where you can actually have a cost reliability curve added to the, a cost maintenance curve added to the cost reliability curve. Does it make sense? That makes sense. But just following up on that, so I guess there's a couple of, of thoughts on, on, on what, what you just laid out. So one thought is you seem to imply that because the operators go through these, um, you know, calculations, that there's almost, um, you, you're making an assumption that oper- a typical operator would also almost work with a redundancy, a certain level of redundancy, and then uh, basically take into account a, say, X percent of the satellites will fail. Is, is that actually yeah. a fair assumption? Okay. Yeah, I think, I think it's a fair assumption. Now, now, I'm not saying that operators are not responsible in their design. It's not true. Right. Yeah. They are responsible. They take a lot of care making sure they do a reliable design. The question is that they have to strike the optimum between the cost of the platform, the mm-hmm. unit cost of the platform, and, and the reliability of it. That's what they have to do. So to address that, for example, SpaceX appears to have placed the, the, the satellite, well, they, they have placed a satellite at 500 kilometer altitude. Mm-hmm. Probably because of that, because by placing it down there, uh, they know that even if some of them fail, they will be they will be naturally uh, decaying and re-entering Earth's atmosphere within five years, right? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is inside of the international guidelines that say it should be getting back within 25 years. So mm-hmm. the logic of being down there is 
is precisely to address this problem. Now, OneWeb in, 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 uh, uh, has another problem. When in the case of OneWeb, they are 1,200 kilometers. If one of their platforms fails at 1,200 kilometers, they will have this platform in orbit for more than 1,000 years, right? Mm. And, and, that's, and, and that's the challenge. So it depends a lot on the altitude. And at the same time, you cannot make large constellations easily coexist in the same altitude. That's one of the challenges. So little by little, question is, where do you place your constellation? If you're higher up, you need less satellites. You have other kind of problems. So there's different optimums that you can kind of build around. But um, I think that operators try to do very reliable platforms, but then they have to balance a business case with mm -hmm. how much they can actually spend in CapEx on a single platform to make sure that it is. They, it will not be 100% and they have to be able to live with something that's not 100%. Let's put it like this. And and maybe if you try to put numbers around that, maybe that's a difficult question, but sort of uh, both from history as well as uh, as maybe on these theoretical calculations, I mean, what kind of fa average failure rates are we talking about? Is it like, you know, 10th of a percent, 1 percent, 10 percent? No, I, I, I think it's it's superior. It's substantially superior to 1 percent. You, you've got some cases, for example, if you take un until one where the biggest uh, in SpaceX, the biggest constellation was Iridium. Iridium mm -hmm. uh, sure. uh, lost about 30 percent of the satellite they launched in orbit wow. yeah so but uh, it was it was a, a radical transition at the time when motorola started the program where they, they, they essentially built uh um a gsm towers in in space right and they they cut the cost they, they made radical changes into it so there were different reasons why why those satellites failed and and probably the latest generations were less problematic than the first ones. Um, in the case of SpaceX, I think the failure rate is about 6% right, right now, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And mm -hmm. uh, we wouldn't be surprised if it's around 10, and they can live with that because they're pretty low. That's really the approach they have. Um, for um, for OneWeb, it's probably a, a better a, a, a better kind of figures because they have a, a very different platform architecture. So it's really hard to say from one to another. But what we would say is that certainly above three percent. That that's our take. Now you have to you have to look at um, uh, what failure is called, right? What kind of failure? Because you've got diff a lot, lot of different mm. types of failures on the satellite. You can have a payload failure, or you can have a full a full loss of the satellite or incapacity to the orbit. Um, and the question for us, what's really interesting for us, is not so much the payload failure. Sure. But the, the fact that the satellite cannot be controlled back into Earth's atmosphere at the end of its life, which it, which is uh, the metrics, which is important in mm -hmm. this case. Mm -hmm. that, that that makes sense. So I mean, even even at you know five percent or so, I mean, given that we are proposing to launch tens and tens of thousands of satellites, that's a potentially quite um, quite significant number. And I guess also what's really going on is, I mean, so we've talked the last few minutes about companies sort of, um, I guess, optimizing economically for themselves. But of course, you can have these cases where a lot of um, participants in something let's say locally for themselves optimize and you you get globally a failure to optimize which is effectively the definition yeah. one of the definitions yeah. of, a, of a of a prisoner's dilemma or in economic terms of a tragedy of the commons which i think is what's really going on here right it's like overfishing the oceans or something like that yeah now often what, what what i could see and we we went through all the studies and papers all the publication when we started clear space and what we could see is all the studies that were made were always once one constellation against an existing uh, space environments, right, when they looked at the risk of collision. This means they look at space track and then they compare space track with their constellations and say, what is the risk? And, and this is not realistic because in reality, as soon as they're going to be up there, 
the environment's going to be fundamentally different and the environment mm. changes very fast. So most of those studies done like three, four years ago uh, are not really valid anymore in the new uh, space environment. Uh, and the, the trends are accelerating much faster. The other thing that's happening is that there's a lot more pressure on the operators to address actually this problem because it becomes very visible now. Mm. Um, uh, there, there are companies like Leo Labs that publish uh, often when there's conjunctions. ESA uh, uh, started publishing their conjunctions every time there's a a close encounter between a, a, a two satellites or two objects in orbit, they start publishing this. It means that it becomes known. For years, there's been conjunction or even collision nobody actually ever talked about, right? And uh, because the engineers would see the problem, they would sweat overnight, they would pray a lot, try to do a maneuver, uh, try to save the spacecraft. The next day, it was saved, and, and everybody kind of gets back to normal work. But this is never brought up to the decision makers or to the public in general, which means that at the end, it's only a small part of the population that was really aware of what was going on in orbit, and and, and a few people were starting to 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 raise the red flags uh, a few years ago, but it, it was not very much publicized, and mostly because those events were not talked about. It was not going in the press. And that's something that changes a lot. And I think the new generation, and I see that with our childrens and 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 the and, and the, the 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 millennials, they're all new generation that they don't want to live in a mess, right? They don't want mm-hmm. to live in in our garbage, <laughs> in our garbage patch. They they want to live in a world that they can actually build something in. So as this population grows in age and takes more and more uh, a, a leading role in in uh, in in uh, in politics and and in in public opinion. Um, it, it will it will drive very much all the the industry to to really think through sustainability much more in detail, much more seriously, and to implement the measures that are necessary. We were kind of betting on that when we started Clear Space. Mm-hmm. We thought 2025 is going to be the time. We thought the first actually tender that could come out would be in 2020. To 2023. That was our bet. We thought before that, forget it. We'll have a lot of trouble with investors. We'll have a lot of trouble uh, to get a mission. We might find sponsors that believe in what we do. That was our take. And uh, and what happened actually is that the first tender came out 18, eight months after we created Clear Space in 2018, which was okay. a huge surprise for us. Yeah. And from there, what we could see is that everything moved much faster than anything we predicted. Right. So it, it's it's we were predicting it would move much slower this change that is happening right now when it comes to space sustainability. And we see that this movement is taking on really quickly. We also see a lot of startups starting in the U.S. around the subject as well. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good sign that the space industry takes it seriously and that the public in general is really concerned about making sure that what we, what we build as infrastructure, what the previous generations of space, space pioneers built as infrastructure will be maintained and that we can actually have pioneers coming after us that still have an environment where they can actually innovate. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned in, in there that you were kind of thinking about this and doing this before it was sort of like wild, widely known. It's still not widely known, arguably, but before it became yeah. a thing or cool. Uh, just quickly um, uh, diverging on that. So what what is the origin story? How did you guys come up with the idea? How did that happen? How did you wake up and say, let's do a space dev? Well, the, what the beginning was a space debris cleanup company. I understand yeah. it's more of a general orbit services company, which we'll talk about. Yeah, so so the the really what started the program was was the Swiss Cube mission in 2009. I mean, at the very beginning. And what happened is that uh, Muriel joined EPFL to launch a satellite. She received that mission when she arrived at EPFL. You have to do a satellite in two years, right? Mm-hmm. Which she did. 
right? She she did the, the Swiss cube, which was an experiment um, of a small CubeSat of one U, 10 centimeters by 10 centimeter, really small satellite. And, and a couple of things happened. The first one is on the day of the launch, when the satellite was on the Indian launcher, the PSLV, uh, ESA sent an email over saying they cannot participate to the mission because it was launched too high. At 700 kilometers, a satellite remains 100 years in orbit. Mm-hmm. And that was way too long, according to international guidelines. So it was a surprise at the time for the team. And it was a shock, thinking, oh my God, we, we actually launched too high. But when you launch a CubeSat, you don't have the choice of the altitude. You just mm. hitchhike on the right of somebody else. Sure. And um, the other thing that happened is that as soon as they launched, uh, they had all those conjunction messages, which were a lot, often generated by debris of the Cosmos Iridium collision that happened in 2009, because we launched in, in, in the same altitude. And putting all that together, it kind of really triggered uh, quite some concern in, in the team about what will be the end of life of the Swiss cube? Could it be a collision, right? And uh, mm. at the time, EPFL decided, let's, let's study this. So they spent a couple of years uh, getting clever on the subject. And in 2012, they came to the conclusion, um, what's actually missing in the space environment is, a, is, is the removal capability. It's, it's missing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So let's demonstrate it. Let's demonstrate the complete value chain. So she's been, she's been fighting for funding since 2012 to 2017, 18, to try to find somebody ready to help pay for a mission like this. And nobody would. Everybody would say the same, would say, who would ever pay for that? Mm. Where's the policy, right? Yeah. Whereas, yes. and, and actually, this kind of thinking is paralyzing for innovation, mm. right? It paralyzes innovation because you say, oh, there's no business model right now, so I'm not going to invest into that. Mm. Or if I invest into that, it might be that this is completely lost because it's too expensive and so on. So, she did that until, until 2017 when we met, and um, uh, she did a lot of research on the subject, on robotic arms, on capture systems, huge trade-offs mm-hmm. on what is the right way to approach and capture an object in orbit. Uh, a lot of work has been done within EPFL. And me, I met mm-hmm. her in 2017 after uh, uh, doing an executive in Stanford where I met uh, uh, the founder of Momentus and, mm-hmm. and Astro Digital. He was a oh. classmate of mine. Mikhail, and yeah. uh, mm-hmm. at, at the time, I was not in the space industry and he told me about uh, about how the space industry is changing because he had a startup. It was at, at the time, it was Astro Digital. And uh, they, they were planning to launch a constellation of hyperspectral satellites that were making Earth, her observation. And mm-hmm. it, it felt incredible to me that it was possible to have a startup to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It seems to be such an expensive venture. How could it be a startup? Mm-hmm. And so we spent the afternoon together and he, he explained me essentially that you, you can put in a microwave oven what you previously need a mini cooper in space yes. to do, right? And and you can actually uh, you, you can actually launch it at a relatively inexpensive cost now with a SpaceX mm-hmm. launch. So this fundamentally changed the possibilities. I walked out of there thinking, hey, that's like the microcomputer industry in the 80s, right? When when they yes. went from the mainframe to the PC, it was transformational for a complete industry. And mm-hmm. I think this is what's happening in the space industry right now. So I was walking away from there and I met Muriel and she shows me uh, the curve of space debris, which looks like an exponential. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. thought, this mm-hmm. is this is actually incredibly interesting. How often do you have an industry that is going through a, a transformational uh, uh, period like this and has an exponential pain point, right? Yes. It, it's it's very unusual. So we we started drafting with Muriel uh, business plans overnight in, at EPFL on whiteboards. Thinking how can we actually uh, finance sustainably finance something like this? And came to the mm-hmm. conclusion mm-hmm. that there's a way to do this. That's a few things have to fall in place, but there's a way to actually build up to do this. And it's interesting because the first question I asked Muriel, I told her, "What do you want to do? You want to go pick up the Swiss Cube, or you want to clean up space?" And she said, "I want to clean up space." 
right? So we decided, okay, in that case, you need a business model. You cannot do it if you cannot self-sustain. If you don't, if you don't do a, a financially sustainable venture, you you cannot actually take on such a big problem with, without without finding ways to auto finance it. So that, that's really how we started. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we wrote a business plan after that because we felt we should. We should probably write a business plan if we have an idea and presented it to the business incubator in Zurich uh, of, of uh, ISA, ISA Big Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And they selected us, right? They said, uh, you're selected. So they called us and said, uh, you're selected. So I said, okay, fine. Now what? And they mm-hmm. said, so now we have to sign an incubation contract. And uh, so I told them, okay, with whom With whom do you want to sign an incubation contract? I said, with your company. I said, we don't have a company. <laughs> so I said, you better find one right now. So that's what yep. we did. We created clear space like this. So that's really how we started, right? And uh, we, we looked at it. We went to see a lot of investors and, and funds and support for, 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 for startups. And everybody told us, you guys are crazy. That cannot work. Um, you're, you're second line behind OneWeb. OneWeb's going to go bankrupt. You have one customer. How can that actually work? And we were always saying the same. We're saying we're not betting on OneWeb. We're not be- betting on mm. one mega constellation. We're betting on the change. We're betting on the change that's going to happen in the space industry. And this is possible because of technology readiness levels. This is possible because of infrastructure that are where they need to be, right? Now mm-hmm. it's possible to build something new. So that's that's why that's what we're betting on. And mm-hmm. we came mm-hmm. to the conclusion though, we're not gonna find investors that early or or just really crazy ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or visionary ones, maybe. That's a better way to put it. And uh, and uh, we went to see to seek sponsors. That's what we did first. And uh, mm-hmm. so so this more or less how we got started. We thought let's do like solar impulse, let's do something similar to solar impulse. They mm-hmm. managed to finance a plane that flies around Earth with 180 million with only sponsors, which is incredible. Right, mm-hmm. what they managed to do, and I thought, well, if they could, why, why couldn't we? Right, we want to bring mm-hmm. change. That's what we want to do. And actually, all this acts activated, as I said before, much faster than what we ever expected, and led us to where we are right now, with a with a with a uh, with an 86 million contract euro contract with U- with ESA. Uh, we're already on another uh, contract with um, with UKSA, and and we're about 50 employees in the company right now, and have a large industrial team of about 20 companies working with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's actually delve into what your so- solution looks like so what, what what does a tow truck mission in space look like so it, it it's it, the question is whether it's the first one or if it's the the the, the recurrent kind of business mm. uh the first one will be very simple i mean it's very complex to do but it's a relatively simple mission profile which means that we have a spacecraft that has a lot of propulsion on it uh um in in the first one we have just one propulsion system we don't have multiple different propulsion system but in the future we might actually have a virus propulsion system depending on mm-hmm what we need to do if we need to do big distances or if we need to be agile in, in an operation. And um, and this and this, and this truck essentially will be launched into a, a compatible orbit with the target we go pick up. So in this case, it's a Vespa upper part. Then we will align with, with the orbit of the object. You can drift actually to do that without using any propulsion. Then mm-hmm. once you're ready, you you first, you commission your, play, or your platform, you test everything one by one, all the systems. You test the robotics, you test some operations to make sure you can 
going to actually do everything in orbit. And then you go up into uh, orbital altitude. You have an approach, uh, a far and close rendezvous approach. There's a moment where you switch from absolute navigation to relative navigation. This means mm-hmm. you're going to navigate relative to the target you pick up. Then you have you have a capture phase where you it's there's a the whole question is how do you pick up uh, an object mm-hmm. in orbit? Mm-hmm. It's a little like when you have to bite a bucket in a uh, an apple in a bucket of water, right? It's not easy right. to do. You have to have some technique, right, to yep. be able to catch it. And then uh, and then we we will just stabilize the stack, slow it down, getting back into Earth's atmosphere. That that's as simple as that for the first one. Now. When we look at the future, our objective is to have a platform that does multiple deorbiting. So all the designs we do are for multiple activities in orbit. And uh, so that's completely integrated in our design from the beginning. And the idea is that with one platform, you can actually repeat this operation with three, four, five, ten spacecrafts that are that needs uh, intervention. Then it will depend a lot on one mission profile to another. For example, if you have to go pick up a very large object like MBSAT, right, which is a 2.3 billion euro budget yeah. mission, um, uh, in that case, you probably have one, one, one servicer that's just going to do that, right, with single use, because it's such a big object and, and, and such a, 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 um, a risky mission that you probably have single use. Uh, and then for objects that are incompatible or or, or small sat like uh, one web satellite, which already actually have uh, the orbiting interfaces uh, installed on it, uh, you, you can actually uh, go toward multi multi removal per spacecraft with always the same objective: reduce the transaction cost of a single operation. Mm. Right, that's mm-hmm. what we that's what we're working on. That's our focus. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit. There's there's a lot of stuff there. So um, where do we start? Let's let's start with the propulsion. So what kind of propulsion do you do you need? Is I mean, is is that chemical or electrical to get to the object, or what do you? So so in in the in the ESA mission, we're going to be on chemical propulsion, right? Mm-hmm. And this is uh, dictated by um, by the mission profile and the requirements that ESA has. Right? How quickly do you have to get to the object, and how quickly you have to deorbit it? Okay. Um, th- there's two consideration when it comes to propulsion first is uh, is what's called the ISP is essentially how much speed variation you can do with one kilogram of propellant Right. It's and like fuel efficiency. It's like a ex- yeah, exactly. Or something. It's like the, exactly. It's the number of of of, uh, of uh, gallon per miles or or liter per kilometer per hundred kilometer. It's exactly mm-hmm. that. So so what you have in for space operation, you've got different types of propulsion that have different kind of behaviors, and depending on what you want to do, you might choose one or the other. Right. So the approach we have today is that when we build up clear space, we decided we're not going to vertically integrate all the technologies. But we will have partnerships for different subsystems, if you want. And that's typically what uh, Apple, for example, does with the iPhone. So we have mm-hmm. experts, uh, domain experts for propulsion, for example. Then he's got, he knows that what everybody does and what's, what are the capabilities of different types of propulsion. They can say, okay, fine, we choose this one for this generation or for this type of missions, right? And we choose that one for that kind of operations so that we can really optimize the complete equation and the, and the platform behavior from, from, from one operation to another. So a lot of the intelligence is a little like um, if you take a Tesla car, Right, it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not so much on the on the parts itself. There's there's an intelligence. You need a certain performance mm-hmm. from the parts, but the system engineering of how to integrate all that integration into a product yep. that mm-hmm. makes sense is really critical, and that's where we have most of our. Uh, our team working. Understood. I don't know if that makes sense. So for that propulsion, sense, yeah. it, it's, it's going to be variable, and from one mission to another, it might change. 
right? Uh, what we have, what, what we work on is modularity and the design of the platform so that we can actually accommodate the kind of operations we need to do on the, on the propulsion side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, so I guess I was talking about the propulsion to get to the object. Once you have the object and you do sort of the fine maneuvering, is that like a, like a bunch of like small cold gas thrusters or what, how is that? Yeah, so, so actually the, the, we, we, we generally don't share the, the detail of our okay, design, no right? We, we don't get so much in detail, but yeah. agility is definitely important at this stage. Yeah. Uh, you've got for for more agile or or more thrust, you have typically a limited set of possibilities in terms of propulsion. Uh, cool gas is one option. Mm -hmm. uh, you mm -hmm. can have chemical propulsion. There's some use of green propellant as well. So mm -hmm. th there's mm -hmm. different kind of options there. Uh, okay. And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of a part of our, our secret sauce secret that we sauce. actually do yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. No worries. Um, on, on, on the platform, I mean, again, obviously just tell us as much as you're comfortable telling us on, on the platform. I mean, how, how big is the platform for the first mission? So for the first mission, it's a, it's a 700 kilogram class platform. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not, it's not a small platform, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it's about one meter 40 high, 120 uh, um, uh, in diameter or, or across. Uh, so it's 120, 120 by 140, more or less, the size of the platform that we have for the for the first mission. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, yeah, that's about that. That's about the, the the size of what we have, and then it includes a, obviously a capture system that you see on our website. Yeah. Um, all the all the payload. We we probably higher than needed uh, on on this one um, because we we have a we we it's an ESA mission. So obviously the the safety requirements are substantially higher. Very high. Uh, the yeah. very aggressive uh, uh, safety requirements, which makes sense uh, for for a for a, a space operation has to go in contact with an object already in space. You 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 need to have a high level of safety. Uh, mm -hmm. This is not a reason why it makes a lot of sense to actually have ESA on a first mission because they 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 have the experience of docking with the ISS, they have the experience of uh, uh, um, flying astronauts. So th there's a, the, the level of requirements and level of expertise that ESA can bring into the design process of a startup like us is huge. The, the advantage is huge. It's challenging as well because it's a very different culture, but uh, but th there's a huge value in, in an exercise like this. And it, it forces us to really look at the detail of what can happen. Mm. All the fear that events analysis has to be done very much in detail. How are you going to handle all, all the, the potential risk of failure or problems that mm -hmm. you can have on board? Um, how you so so it's a very detailed assessment we do right now, uh, which will provide a very uh, very solid foundation for future in orbit servicing mission. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's let's explore that a little bit further. So if you look at sort of the the various components, and of course, as you said, the integration is in many ways the most important. But if you look at the components that or the, the parts of technology stack that you need, right? So uh, I mean, it's the simple stuff like the platform the propulsion. But I guess the more interesting stuff is the the rendezvous pro proximity operations technology, both on the uh, I guess on the algorithmic software side as well as sort of like the hardware you can run mm -hmm. this on. Um, I assume this is fully autonomous, but but correct me if I'm wrong. And uh, I guess you need the capture mechanism. Um, if you look at all of these different parts of the stack, I mean, what kind of TIL levels are we talking about here? And sort of what is the biggest remaining? Um, you know, challenge, if any, at this point, other than integration. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 obviously capturing the object in orbit is the biggest challenge, right? Because mm. all, all the rest of the operation getting close and so on are things that have been done before. Capturing is mm -hmm. something that is really new. 
right? This, there hasn't been non-cooperative, completely demonstrated non-cooperative capture like the ones we're going to do uh, during this mission. So that's that's the most challenging part of the exercise. Um, we are also bringing a startup into a very high level of maturity extremely fast, right? Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. also, we feel that as challenging because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of very intense work. But I think uh, if, if you if we look at the overall exercise, I think the effectively the last the last phase of capture um, is is, uh, is the most, is for our mission, the most challenging one. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a very broad answer. I cannot go more in detail than that. Yeah, no worries. No worries. But, yeah. um, but let me, let me follow up. So you mentioned it hasn't, it hasn't been done before. To, to what extent, and I, I do realize it's not exactly the same thing, but to what extent is something like like the Norfolk Grumman mission extension vehicle that, you know, docks to satellites like the dip with Intelsat to, to basically act as a propulsion unit, um, which also, also requires rendezvous proximity operations. To what extent is that comparable and then not comparable? Yeah, so I think the, the difference is that when Northrop Grumman approaches a, 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 um, a um, Intelsat satellite, it's a stable platform. It's got its AOCS uh, attitude control systems on. Mm -hmm. It's able to maintain its pause, right? So this means you can stabilize the approach, the, the, the platform you're going to approach. Uh, and you're actually doing active against active, right? This means that you can really align the two and mm -hmm. get them stabilized. So you can say, okay, this one has to, to, to keep exactly this pose, and this one has to has to approach. The, the only problem you're going to have is, is, is this, there's moments where, where you have to transition from one to the other and that, that's something that has to be handled in a mission like this but it, it means that you you need you need relative you, you can do um you, you can do a docking which is relatively uh, simple right you can you mm -hmm. can you can do a straight force approach and and uh, there's um there's a lot of them that i mentioned that it makes it much simpler in in the case of the of the um, in the case of the of, of the vespa we're going to pick up it's very likely to be tumbling right Mm, so it's an mm -hmm. object that is rotating in orbit, right? It's got a spin mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. And then you will have to approach it and pick up something that one is not active, two is not stabilized. Is, is, uh, in some cases, you might even have a, a spacecraft that fights against you. Right. If it's failed and it's got its AOCS active, its uh, uh, attitude control systems active, it might actually be belligerent. Right? It might be fighting back. So it's <laughs> like a video game. <laughs> yeah, it feels like that. So, so I think doing non-corporative capture is substantially more difficult to do uh, than actually do do a capture of a of a platform which is stabilized. It's it's that's, uh, yeah, it's very fair. different. And um, so it's it's much closer what 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 uh, uh, Northrop Grumman does with. MEV one is much closer to docking with with the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. The difference is that they pick they, they will they will use the nozzle of the propulsion system, which has not initially been designed for that. But mm -hmm. the strategy, the approach is similar. When when you dock, you have for example the the, the the Russian docking system on the ISS is also a cone and then a bar that gets in and then pushes against and it right. Sent, right it centers. So the 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 approach that Northrop Grumman chose for for the MEV one is actually very very clever way to do that and and uh, it's very similar actually the, the difference is that there's no sensors um on the on the the target or the, or the client spacecraft uh, that are prepared for the docking right the platform has mm -hmm. not been prepared but it's stable and it's got an interface where 
capture is actually relatively easy. It's interesting mm -hmm. they didn't use a robotic arm, right? To do that. It's yes. Interesting. Yes. You guys, if I look at the website, and I encourage listeners to go to the website and we'll put the link, uh, it, it almost looks like a spider, sort of like, yeah. uh, so it's, you have these 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 arms, I suppose. So it's, yeah, it's actually so very it's, cool. And there's, there's, some, there's some reference to it in the press in the UK. They were saying it's the claw. <laughs> it's the, the claw. claw. <laughs> and and they, made, they made the reference to Toy Story, where where, uh, where there's this, this small, in, in, in at some point in the first Toy Story movie, Movie, Buzz Lightyear gets into a rocket, which is which is in a playground for kids, and and it's got those small aliens, and he asks, and it's a claw machine, right? Right. And yes. Looks like a rocket. And say, who's your master? And they all point to the to the roof and say, the claw. The claw's our master. The claw chooses <laughs> who stays and who will leave. So it's it's uh, it's quite fun. The the reference. Uh, yeah, it looks a little like a claw, like a spider. Um, there's been quite some thought put into how to do this. Okay. And then you mentioned something before, which, which struck my interest, which was talking about multiple deorbiting on, on a mission or with the same vehicle um, to, to bring down costs, which makes a lot of sense. So I just wanted to clarify. So what does it look like? Is that the same vehicle sort of like going back and forth? Or is it sort of like almost like an inverse space tug or let's say garbage truck where you actually pick up various objects in the same vehicle? So there's, uh, um, we did quite some assessments on the different scenarios, right? You, you mm -hmm. could also have uh, adding some deorbiting kit on every object on, on mm -hmm. multiple satellites. You just install the orbiting kits, which is uh, just installing is, is much more magical in terms of technical capability than it seems. I mean, there's a lot of those elements where you've got A, B in between. The strategy is magic, right? You don't mm -hmm. yet know how you're going to do it. So installing something in orbit into a satellite is not an easy thing to do. That's, that's what I tried to say um the the very likely uh, uh the, the most likely approach is probably a, sh a kind of a shuttle approach where you you pick up an object bringing it to a rapid deorbiting mm -hmm. uh, um orbit and then get back up right that, that's what seems to be the most likely uh it's hard to say over time how it's going to evolve as we mm -hmm. uh, as operations start it could be that there's some alternative ways of operating that will be more effective over time and it will also depend on how the technology develops but at first sight they, they were kind of one option was to have single use and you make something that is close to us a, a bicycle, very simple satellite, just use once. Mm -hmm. um, the, the alternative is to do the shuttle, which means that you, you go pick up an object, bring it down, get back up, and then bring down the next one. Um, and um, one of the challenge you will have is that navigating a single object is very different from navigating a stack, right? Mm, so yeah. so if you have a spacecraft, let's say of 500 kilograms, that's going to pick up another object in orbit that is like 200 kilograms, it's Right. So then you have a spacecraft of 700 kilograms with a very different center of mass. You have a lot of mm. everything kind of changed. So then capturing another object with this stack will be quite challenging, right? Because first you have to have your 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 capture interface available, and 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 then you have to be able to actually capture with something on your back, right? Yes. Yes. So so. Yes. Those are the kind of challenges. I think when, when you start doing those trade-offs, uh, the, they're not very complicated. I think a lot of people actually did them. Uh, that's where you will see the limits. There's another thing is that if you, if you move uh, a certain mass Right in orbit, you need a certain quantity of propellant to do this. Mm -hmm. This delta mm -hmm. V, this 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 acceleration. And um, uh, if you have more kilograms, then you you need more propellant. Right. So there's yeah. also a propellant equation there. That that the question is, which is the one that actually works best? Yeah, yeah. I, we could we could go down this rapid hole for an entire episode. As exactly. Say if, if, exactly. If, That's if, a... if you do the shuttle approach, that 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 also seems to be like a lot of delta V. So the question yep. is, is uh, do you do you still use chemical or not? But but let's let's <laughs> unfortunately 
we certainly don't have time. We spend a lot of time on the subject. (laughs) There's been some publications on that that are quite interesting to read. Yes. Um, And and maybe we'll we'll put some in in, in the show notes for people who want to delve into it. But so let's move on to a different question. So once you hopefully successfully conduct the, the, the clean space, the, the, the ASA mission. Um, what's, what, comes, what comes after that? So how do you see sort of the uh, steady state um, operation of the, the company? Well, actually, when we look at it, we think what happens in parallel, right? Mm, that, that's Because even better, we, yes. Yeah, we, we, not, we, we don't plan to, to get to the end of this mission before thinking about the, the something else. We, we plan to build up in parallel mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. Uh, this work with operators. So th- there's several things. Is that we think that there's going to be more institutional missions, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of objects are institutional. Today, there are massive objects in orbit, which are massively problematic, right? Uh, uh, there's a list, actually, that has been done by Darren McKnight um, uh, in, a, in a group of international experts with the 50 more da- most dangerous objects or problematic objects in orbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's there's one dimension will, which will be institutional removal. And I think at this stage, um, launching states and, and space agencies have to really seriously look at their past and think, okay, can we actually live uh, with a large fragmentation event in the press? Like, what does that mean for us in terms of our budgets, our the perception of the agencies, what we do, and what we try to build as a future? Right. I mean, I mean, if you really look at the, the origin and the motivation to create a space agency, why you do it? Right. Is mm. is it to produce space debris? Definitely not. So I think this this will require those uh, um, uh, space agencies to start thinking it through, and we see it already happening. The UK Space Agency just started. Uh, um, a phase zero study for removal of two objects licensed. So uh, we, we expect that there's going to be Initially, the early adopters are going to be large missions like removing SL-16 from 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 Russia, right? Mm-hmm. And SL-16 are very large rocket bodies; they're like nine tons. And there's a couple of them that cross by 100 meter every month or two in orbit. If those two, if those kind of objects enter in collision, it would have direct consequences for the complete space mm-hmm. industry. So there's those object MVSAT kind of object. Hubble's going to fail at some point. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that that's the kind of first. I think institutional missions going to continue and there's going to be probably new missions started while uh, Clear Space One is still in progress, right? The, the other thing is that we have to start working much more in detail and common with uh, with uh, constellation operators to say, okay, mm-hmm. especially the ones that are above 600 kilometers, which will be the first uh, uh, interested, and then just work day in day out with them and say, okay, fine, how do we build something that makes sense and makes your environment sustainable? How do we help you guys to make sure that you can actually long-term sustain at the same time your business case, right? Because they have a business case that has to work and Uh, and, and the environment. How do we do mm-hmm. that? How, how can we help? We, and, and so this will naturally drive to recurring reusable platform um, with a very a model very close to what we have here in Switzerland with the TCS, right? Is like the, mm-hmm. the roadside support or AAA yes. in the US or ADAC in Germany. So mm-hmm. it's this kind of model that we that we will be building up together with those constellations. We strongly believe in design with the customer. So we think the only way to make something make sense is actually to do it with them. And we we are already in contact with the, with those actors on a, on a, on a regular basis, debate how to actually address the problem. Uh, what we see is that institutional mission will retire non current engineering costs right and that's really fundamental and that has been historically always the case in the space industry that without um without nasa falcon 9 wouldn't be what it is right mm-hmm. but with, with and, and starship wouldn't be either right and so mm-hmm. and many of the of what we're able to do today are possible really because of, of uh, initial institutional mission so i think this is a little how it's going to work so the institutional mission 
with a low to retiring, recurring engineering costs and help bring the mm-hmm. cost recurring costs down at the level of safety we need to achieve in terms of in orbit servicing. Mm-hmm. That's how we I look think, at when we look at the future. Yeah. That's what we see. So speaking of the of the cost, I think last time we talked, we, we sort of um, you, you mentioned that the sort of average expected cost for a for an average mission, and that's of course a very difficult thing to project, is something on the order of a few million dollars or or euros yeah. or francs. So it kind of brings up the question, um, you know, what's the current view of um, how this will be paid? Who's paying for it? Because one can imagine like a range of models, right? One is a sort of like okay, one customer pays for um, a specific um, removal, which is the case with the agencies and i can see that but that's yeah. maybe much more difficult with the at least for the moment of the commercial customers right um there's this uh, sort of semi-famous quote by a, a constellation operator ceo who may have been a past guest on this podcast saying he wouldn't pay more than ten thousand dollars yeah I know, I know who you're talking about and, um and then of course there's other models one can mention. I, I love the comparison you actually just made with triple a right which is basically everybody just pays a member like a periodical membership yeah. fee and then if something happens uh, you're covered of course the counter argument is that may or may not introduce um, what we call moral hazard, right? That people just become lax on, on safety. So is there any sort of current view of, um, you know, what do you think, the, the, how this may play out? Yeah, so the, the, the AAA model is, is is definitely interesting. I think another one that, that should be explored is is uh, the, the offset model, which is a little like the carbon offset. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when you buy a flight, uh, an airline ticket, you, you have your airline fare, and then you have the carbon offset that appears in your... And it's a way of making everybody responsible of the infrastructure we use and, and aware of the impact they have on the environment and making sure that what we actually use is sustainable. Uh, I think this is probably a model that should seriously be explored, but it would actually bring back to the AAA kind of model where, where um, a foreign operator, this cost is predictable, right? They can easily factor it into their constellations. Okay, that's how much it costs for mm-hmm. making the environment sustainable. And then they can actually even invoice it directly to the end user uh, uh, over their service cost uh, with, with a small delta saying, okay, that's the clean space offset and, and use that as, a, as a, a way of saying that they care about it, right, while still the end user pays for it. So that, that's an option. Um, me, I'm, I'm quite convinced that the AAA or the insurance model makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we will have to get there. I'm also convinced that a lot of the institutional uh, uh, removals will have to be multinationally driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you look, just if you take just Russia, um, if they would have, they, they wouldn't have the budget to remove everything they have up there. Right, they have mm-hmm. a huge mm-hmm. amount of objects, sure. mostly because they launched a lot, and often they actually launch for other states. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so. In, in this kind of environment, I think there's a there's, there's a thinking process that should should be put in place. Saying, okay, what do we leave to the next generation in orbit? Right? What what is the stuff that we're going to leave up there for our children's mm-hmm. or grandchildren's? And what are we going to do to make sure that we remove as much as what we can, or or at least the most critical stuff that we actually remove it? So that's one dimension. And then for large constellation, I think typically a triple A AAA kind of model makes it predictable. Makes it tr- predictable. You can even offset it with the end user uh, of the service, uh, which is definitely the kind of communication you want to give to your clients when you're an operator and i think it's going to be more so in the in the coming couple of three years because this is not going to go away this problem is going to accelerate it's going to be in the press every week every two weeks so Mm -hmm. saying okay i take care of it right uh is is certainly uh uh, something that will be valuable when it comes to positioning a brand uh or or positioning a company in 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 its values and what, what they want to do yes and that's sort of leaving aside the option which nobody hopes will happen that there may just be a catastrophic event at some point. Yeah, so and, and in the past. I, I completely understand CEOs that say I cannot pay more than 10,000 for a removal. 
right? I, com- I completely understand mm-hmm. where, where they're coming from, right? The point is that the environment we're going to operate in two, three years from now is going to be so different from the one we used to operate for the last mm. 20 years that I think those positions will change very quickly as, as we move on. Uh, the question is, what kind of event has to happen in orbit for a change to occur? And the risk is, if those events happen, what kind of change will happen? And, and one of the big risks is that uh, there's a, 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 a an event occurring in orbit that produces very harsh regulations or might uh, push the policymakers to take decisions that are uh, that are uh, too harsh, actually, for the space industry or, or would start having an impact on, on the bottom line of what the space industry can do and how it can scale. So that, that, yes. that's the risk we have on the table right now. And from an operator's perspective, I think they should probably be proactive in this exercise and say, okay, let's work together to find a solution which is reasonable. Uh, we all know that you cannot fly a mission for $10,000, it's not physically mm-hmm. possible. They cannot fly their own satellite at this price either, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and, and the, the cost structure of space operations are no, right? They're, they're, it's not like they're new. Um, our, our challenge for us, what we try to do is to bring the cost of in-orbit servicing down. That's really at the heart of what we try to do. But uh, in, in the approach, I think with, uh, with operators, what we hope for and look for is really a collaboration. So, okay, what can we achieve? How can we address the problem? How can we make sure there's not a major event that affects us all in a few years? Uh, how do we make sure that what we actually build today, uh, our kids are still going to be living with it and their kids are going to be living with it too? They will look back at our generation and say, well, we, we had inspiring pioneer at that time that really show, shown and found a way to get into a sustainable kind of operation. And we need to do that in every single industry segment. I'm absolutely mm-hmm. convinced about that. Mm-hmm. Let's stay on this uh, note of sort of the kids and grandkids in the future. Well, I guess a little bit closer in time if you were to look out i don't know 10 years in the future or something like 2030 um what's your ideal vision for for clear space where would you like the company I mean, to be yeah in 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 2030 my ideal vision is that we have constantly about uh uh 20 30 or 40 servicer in orbit that that mm-hmm. just naturally serve all different kind of business cases that are that or, or needs uh in orbit to make sure that this environment remains clean and that we have we have demonstrated substantially substantial change in the projection NASA and ESA are doing about the future of the space debris environment. Um, I think this is really, if, if there's something I would like to be able to look back upon, th- this is the legacy I would like to see. And to and, and at the same time, to obviously build a company that is uh, financially viable and that is growing and mm-hmm. scaling. So that, that's really, that's how we look at it. And if, if at the same time, we could have inspired a few vocations and uh, the next pioneers uh, to get new stuff started, I mean, I would just be proud about that if we could... Uh, uh, produce that kind of change. That, that's actually an, an excellent segue sort of into the, one of the closing questions I always ask is the inspiring and the pioneers and, and doing other things. Um, so if you were not doing clear space, but sort of making a reasonable assumption that um, you're generally excited about space and you love space, is there some other business model um, you would pursue in space? Um, that's an excellent question. I have no clue. Honestly, I have no clue. I, I never really thought about it. Uh, I think there's a huge amount of opportunities. I see a lot of startups around doing a lot of stuff, right? Like getting back to the moon, doing logistics. Yeah. Uh, logistics is def- de- de- definitely an interesting uh, an interesting one. Um, sometimes I think about what, what could be a next startup at some point if I decide to do another one. I, mm-hmm. I think what could have the most impact, I, I would probably move to EdTech. 
even though I'm, I'm not sure I'm not, mm -hmm. and, and, and look into education and transport education, there's probably some interesting dimension to uh, transporting uh, knowledge to the right place around Earth. Right. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. that's an interesting one. Um, but otherwise, in space, uh, it's really hard to say. I would have to think it through, honestly, to uh, to uh, see. No worries. What you're, else, also, yeah. you're obviously super busy on. on clear space yeah, I mean, when, when you're, you're in singularly it, focused, it, it, exactly, you, you end up with, with a very singular focus on what you do, and and uh, um, and and then it takes all your time, right? So, so let me ask you the speaking about future. Let me ask about. Uh, let me ask the, my usual closing question is about science fiction and whether you like science fiction and if yes, what kind of science fiction? So I, I think one of the the one I liked most uh, is uh, the series The Expanse mm -hmm. uh, uh, on Amazon. It's uh, it's it's uh, it's. Uh, I love this one. I actually saw it twice. It's. I think it's. Uh, it's got a lot of really interesting. It, it, the the. There's a lot of uh, there's science fiction, right? It's obviously science fiction, but there's a lot of elements that are actually kind of feasible or that that are thought through that are mm -hmm. correct for space. So it's it's quite impressive how accurate a few of the things are when they talk about propulsion, even mm -hmm. though they're technology that don't exist yet. But what really drives uh, the interest of the value of propulsion, uh, uh, the the way the, the way they set up the, um, those population on Mars and the belt and so on, it's mm -hmm. really interesting. So I, I, I love the series. I, I liked it a lot. Um, Star Wars, obviously, at the beginning, but now it becomes too, to my sense, way too commercial. It's too repetitive. Mm -hmm. I kind of get mm -hmm. bored by it. In the, in the latest latest ones, uh, it's more special effect than real uh, yep. fundamental story. So and it always kind of repeats this kind of a, a cycle. So I felt the expanse was really interesting. I think in the sci-fi ones, the, my, my my number one would be would be the expanse. Yeah, and I mean, as, as listeners know, I would fully agree with you. I think I think I agree. It's very interesting because it's it's science fiction. It's not only science fiction. Um, it's also to to some extent um, the, the politics, the societal yeah. setup, right? You say yeah. with the different societies, it's also it's not implausible. Um, yeah, yeah. That's no, it's it's a very clever. It's very well written it's very well executed and it's interesting when we started hiring because we started having means to hire uh, we put a, an announcement out on, on, on LinkedIn and we, we wrote, we're hiring belters. <laughs> so, because we felt we need we need people that think a little differently, that are little pirates with with, with a MacGyver kind of approach. Uh, yes. so, so that's so we, we issued it like this. And, and there was a there was a, a hiring manager, uh, uh, one of those headhunters in the UK that contacted me right away on it because it probably has the same references <laughs> and says, oh, I see you hiring belters. Yeah, so I, lo I, lo I love that. That's that, that that's a great way of making sure you have cultural uh, alignment as a company. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Luke, thank you so much for your time. We could have gone on for like three, four hours here, but <laughs> of course, people kind of expect podcasts to be of a certain length. Maybe we'll do this again, you know, in one or two sure. years, um, see where we got to. And best of luck with uh, both your ASO mission, but as you said, all of the things you're doing in parallel. And yeah, thanks again. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon then. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. 
Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.